morning. Uh, first off, I want to say thanks for having me be here for two months, short two months. I knew it was short uh, going into it, but um, yeah, it's kind of flown. So thank you for letting me preach three times. Um, so uh, today we will be in Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Uh, you can find Exodus towards the beginning of the Bible. Um, you can use the few Bibles in front of you. Um, it is the second book of the Bible. Uh, flip past 50 chapters of Genesis, um, another 10 chapters of Exodus, and you'll find the 10 verses that we will ponder this morning. Before we begin, let's pray for God's help in understanding His Word. Lord, I, I thank you for uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather, uh, to sing, um, to confess who we are, but also to recognize who you are. Um, pray for our hearts and our minds that you may help us to understand what you have for us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of precedent? If you're not familiar with this doctrine, no worries. I, too, was not familiar until I was introduced to it recently after watching a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who is currently a Supreme Court Justice for the United States. What I learned was that the doctrine of precedence is the idea that in cases that are similar to each other, judges should make similar decisions, similar judgments. And this makes sense. It creates reliability and consistency with the law. As citizens, you know what you are potentially facing before going to court. There is, a, there is, as it were, a legal precedent. However, what if the precedent was wrong? What if, after seeing hundreds of cases similar in nature to each other being judged in the same way, we now realize that making the same judgments will be now wrong? In the legal world, uh, they recognize this flaw. They recognize that wrong judgments are possible not because the doctrine of precedent is flawed, but because of what judges inherently are, human. In the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there's this profound quote that explains. Judges are bound by precedents, but they cannot ignore cultural change. Judges ought not be affected by the weather of the day, but will be by the climate of the era. Basically what this means is that judges have two jobs. A judge's first job is to be as unbiased as possible and to, and to uphold precedence so that the integrity of the law is maintained. They must not be easily swayed by others or change opinions as frequently as the daily weather forecast. But a second uh, job that a judge has is they also must be ready to go against precedence, knowing that all prior judgments are made by imperfect humans. The ideal is actually not possible because humans are imperfect. A mistake could have been made in a prior era, and now it must be corrected with a new judgment. In today's passage, we are challenged by God to judge his own judgments. He has set his own precedence, and we have to make our own opinions about it. How well does God's judgment hold up to the doctrine of precedent? I think what we will find in today's passage is that God's Judgment not only holds up to it pretty well, but it also seems that God may be where the doctrine of precedent actually comes from. Because the doctrine of precedent aims for, what it aims for is finality and fairness. And in God, we will always find both. So let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, and see how God's judgment is both final and fair. 
and how we should respond to it. So beginning in uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man, Moses, was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people will follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So beginning in verse 1, God reminds Moses of his final judgment upon Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He says, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. So what, we, so what we see is that there's one more plague that is to be put upon Pharaoh. In the lead up to this final plague, God has already put, put upon Pharaoh in Egypt nine other plagues. I encourage you to read about them in chapters 7 through 10. And when you read about them, what you will notice is that in those nine plagues, God never uses the type of language that he uses here. With the 10th plague, he says this is the final one. Pharaoh, it seems, has lost his chance. And what this Pharaoh has lost his chance to do is to set the Israelites free. You see, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they have been for much of the last 400 years. But it wasn't always like that in the beginning. Joseph, who was the first Israelite man, to live in Egypt became an important person in Egyptian society because the Pharaoh recognized that God was with him. So favored was Joseph that he became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Joseph enjoyed much freedom, and as a result, he was able to provide a safe haven for his Israelite relatives. This allowed the Israelites to grow exponentially in number. So God's promise to uh, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, that they would be as numerous as the stars was coming true. But eventually that safety went away. A new, favor, new pharaoh had taken the throne, and he had no favor towards Israelites or the God that they followed. He felt threatened by them, and he put them into slavery. Even worse, he made a decree that all sons born to the Israelites had to be killed. Now you may be wondering, why does God let this happen? to his people? That's a good question. I'm not going to say I know fully why God does the things that he does. That is not something that we're able to fully know. But I do know this. God does save his people. 
We see that in this passage. God is bringing a final judgment upon Pharaoh. After hundreds of years of slavery, God hears the cries of the Israelites and reveals himself to save his people. But amazingly, God doesn't immediately come with full-on fire and brimstone. He gives a grace period. It's a very painful period, but it's a period of grace nonetheless. Through the giving out of nine plagues, God was warming up Pharaoh and the Egyptians of his coming final judgment. God was giving them time and a chance to acknowledge him and his commands to free the Israelites. If you look in verse 3, you see some of the Egyptians actually coming around to this. The Lord is causing the Israelites to gain favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. It even says that some some of the servants of Pharaoh himself saw Moses as very great. But if you also notice in verse 3, there is one person missing. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh has still not changed his mind. The king of Egypt, the one in position of leadership and the ability to let the Israelites go, has no change of heart at all. He does not see God's judgment as final. Rather, he saw his own judgment as final. He thinks he has the power to declare what the Israelites will be. He was asserting himself over God. Pharaoh was wrong, though. His judgment was not final. And God's about to show him that he is actually in control. Pharaoh should have gotten that from the last nine plagues, but he didn't. And now God has had enough. There's no going back. Pharaoh has boxed himself in. If you go back to verse 1, we see that there's a finality with God's judgment. There's no room for discussion with the phrase, I will. God will bring one final plague upon Pharaoh. There's no if. For Moses and the Israelites, this would have been a relief. When a judgment is declared final, there's certainty. And what they could be certain of was freedom from slavery. So as you can see, there's uh, two sides to final judgment. There's the good side and the bad side. The bad side is typically what we think about. We think about the punishment. What's going to happen to me if I do this or that? What we don't usually think about is the good aspect to an impending final judgment. It causes us to think. It causes us to stop before we say or do something because there's consequences. Isn't this a good thing? Don't you want people to stop and think before they do any harm to themselves or others? There's going to be a final judgment for them if they follow through with their actions. And let's say they still follow through with their actions. Isn't it good that we still punish a wrong? It it gives us all relief when that happens. Otherwise, we'd have anarchy. People could do whatever they wanted to themselves or others. You see, we need judgment. And the goodness of judgment is littered throughout our lives. In my life, I've had the experience of being a child and a student. As a child, my parents told me that there was going to be consequences to certain actions. And this is because they were trying to steer me onto a proper path. They wanted me to be a responsible and respectful person. And that is good. As a student, my, my teachers gave me deadlines for assignments. And deadlines are like final judgments. <laughs> but this is good because hopefully it encourages work ethic and learning. If I never turn in an assignment, I rightly receive a failing grade. Their mere presence of a deadline, whether we like them or not, 
encourages students to engage in the learning process. And that is good. So what does this mean for us that God's final judgment is coming? If you are other than Christian, I acknowledge that this is a difficult passage to ponder. God's asking for complete loyalty and obedience. If you aren't ready, I understand that. I took a bit of time myself when I was contemplating faith in God as well. But I would say this. Pharaoh's grace period ran out. We aren't sure when final judgment will come, but it will come. God did not say to Pharaoh with each plague, Hey Pharaoh, i got a few more plagues coming, so don't worry about making a decision right now. God's command was to free the Israelites with each plague. He never told them how long it was before the last straw. You shouldn't have to. And we're in the same position because we don't know how many lives, uh, how many days we have in our lives. I understand that it takes time, and please take that if that is the position you're in. God doesn't want an ingenuine decision. But I say this with as, as much sincerity and love as possible. I honestly think that one of the messages of this passage is that God's final judgment is coming. Now on the flip side, for those of us who are Christian, final judgment is a great joy. We may not be under the slavery of a Pharaoh, but we were under the slavery of sin. We were under its bondage and we could not help but live under its control. Slavery is a slow and painful death and sin is very much like that. We wanted to do good, but we could not do it. We were doomed for eternal death. Thankfully, sin does not have the final say. God has the final say. He has declared that sin was defeated on the cross. And on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. In other words, it is final. There's going to be a day in the world where there'll be no sin in the effects that it brings. No death, no pain, no sickness, no brokenness. And what a relief that is. So far, what we, have seen that, what we have seen is that God's judgment is coming. It's final. But we still may have another question about God's judgment. Is God's judgment fair? In verse 5, if you look, uh, God declares that his final judgment uh, will be that Pharaoh's firstborn and the firstborn of every person under him, even the cattle, shall die. Now this may sound harsh, because isn't God's main problem with Pharaoh? Why not just take Pharaoh's firstborn? Well, the fact is that Pharaoh did the same thing to God. Is the fair judgment based on his prior actions? If you recall, I mentioned that Pharaoh ordered all the sons of the Israelites to be killed. And this includes firstborn sons. This decree is described in chapter 1 of Exodus. And the one thing that we can tell is that one of uh, Pharaoh's motives was to reduce the Israelite population. But I want to suggest that Pharaoh is also doing something way more significant. It's not quite as apparent because our, our culture is a little bit different than the Egyptian Israelite culture. In that culture, the firstborn son had a unique role within the family. He was the one to carry on the family name. The father's prestige resided in his firstborn son. Honor and shame are associated with his life. That's why it was confusing to God's people that he chose Jacob over Esau, or King David over his older brothers. 
God should go with the firstborn of the family to lead his people. They have the honor. A similar idea is found in ancient Chinese culture. I am the firstborn son in my family, and I have the honor that comes with that. This doesn't mean that my younger siblings do not share in the family name, but it simply means that I'm especially the one, especially the main one, shouldering it. I represent the family. So what Pharaoh really is doing is attacking God's honor when he is killing the firstborn sons of the Israelites. God's name is associated with them, and Pharaoh attacked it. He's waging war over who God is. Now what happens when you purposefully and actively wage war against God? It's not going to be good, right? And Pharaoh's going to find that out. God's judgment is fair because it communicates to Pharaoh what his exact offense is. It's the proper judgment for the crime committed. When Pharaoh wakes up and sees all the firstborn sons dead, including his own son, who he was counting on to take his own throne, he knows that God's judgment was fair. It shouldn't surprise him why this was God's verdict. The God of Israel is the real and only true God, not Pharaoh. But what about the last verse, verse 10? It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sure, I get God is God, but it sounds like God has some sort of ego in this verse. That Pharaoh wanted to follow and obey God, but God wouldn't give him the option. Maybe because he wanted to puff himself up. How is that a fair judgment from God? You know, I actually agree that it may sound unfair, but with the help of context and Paul the Apostle, we come to a very different conclusion. So firstly, context. We have to remember that uh, Pharaoh is not exactly the nicest guy in the world. He's evil and has put Israel under severe oppression. In chapter 1, it says he was ruthless to the Israelites. In chapter 5, when the Israelites asked to have their work lessened, he does the opposite. He made their work harder. It's plain to see that Pharaoh's heart was not really following the God of Israel. His heart was already hard. Yet the clearest way we can see this is how he responds to God's previous plagues. For example, Moses says this after the fourth plague about Pharaoh. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Did you hear that? Pharaoh, not God, is the cause of his hardened heart after the fourth plague. This is also repeated after some of the other plagues too. So which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Well, the answer is actually both. On this, we come to a mysterious biblical truth. I'll admit that it kind of confuses me too, um, but I want to show you that this is actually a good thing that both are true. It is good that Pharaoh, or any human for that matter, is responsible for their own actions and feelings. Otherwise, we'd be robots. We should believe that every human has their own will because that is precisely how God designed us. However, it is also good that God has the ability to empower our hearts in certain directions. It is good because if God's command is for us to follow him perfectly, how can our hearts possibly do that? 
Do you have the perfect willpower to obey and follow every good command of God? If we're honest, we'd say no. It's such a high standard. If anything, we actually have the perfect willpower to not obey his commands. And this is the reality that makes God's intervention good. We need him to make our hearts soft. So in short, Pharaoh, deep down, was already convicted to disobey God. His heart was already hardened. He never had the will to obey God, because God is the only one who is able to do that for anyone. God simply gave him what he already wanted. But this still begs the question, why did God not choose to soften the heart of Pharaoh? Paul the Apostle answers a similar question in his letter to the Romans. We read it as our New Testament reading today, and I'll read it again here. Uh, So Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And now here's the part where Paul says our current question. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And here's Paul's response. But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand? For glory. Every judge on earth says their judgment is final and fair. In a sense, that is true. But as the doctrine of precedent recognizes, there is a flaw with human judgments. With God, there is no flaw. God's judgment is truly final and fair. He sets an eternal precedent, a precedent that cannot be changed or has no reason to change at all. Paul is urging his, leader, uh, his listeners to see it from that perspective, which in essence is God's perspective. Wondering why God doesn't soften the Pharaoh's heart is a good question. Paul isn't saying we shouldn't ask that question. Paul is just responding to the foundational belief that might be driving that question. He's saying we aren't exactly in the position to say to God what he should or should not do. We are the creatures, and he is the creator. He doesn't owe us a different type of judgment. Nonetheless, Paul does give another explanation in his last two verses. And what he says is really good news. He says, what if God has a good purpose to his wrath? His wrath would show how immeasurably rich he is when he is merciful. You see, every day that goes by is another day of God's mercy. 
All of us have imperfect hearts, imperfect wills, imperfect obedience. We go our own ways. To relate it to our passage, we are little pharaohs in our own hearts. But friends, there's a desire from God to be merciful. That is good news. And for Pharaoh, he experienced some of that mercy with each plague because God showed him patience when he deserved wrath. But when that time came for final judgments, it was not all of a sudden unfair. Actually, it's just the opposite. God was finally being fair. What's unfair is that God didn't punish him after the first plague. By the tenth plague, God was already more than merciful. But what about the Israelites? What Paul says in Romans shows that the Israelites received much mercy as well. Mercy not just being, not just being set free from slavery, but also mercy in a much deeper way. You see, deep down, every Israelite has the same condition that every human has. Not even escape from slavery can fix this condition. The problem is that we are all little pharaohs in our hearts. And the reality is, God has to judge that too. God's judgment is not just for the social injustices, but also the injustice that happens in every human heart. How does God give a final and fair judgment while also accomplishing his desire for mercy? The answer is Jesus. Jesus makes it possible because both justice and mercy come together in him through his death and resurrection on the cross. He is a life sacrificed for God's people. Shortly after our passage in Exodus chapter 12, God told the Israelites that they needed a sacrifice. The only way they could escape judgment was through the blood of a lamb. The blood of the lamb would satisfy the requirements of this judgment uh, upon them for the fact that they are actually little pharaohs in their hearts as well. For the Israelites who sacrificed the lamb, God would know which household had put their faith in him, not only as their judge, but also as their savior. Friends, Jesus is our lamb. In him, God's final and fair judgment is satisfied. Mercy is given through faith in him. For those of you who are other than Christian, that is good news offered to you. For those of you who are Christian here today, that is good news solidified for you. Let us rejoice in the final and fair judgment of God because Jesus Christ fulfills its costly demands. Let's pray. Lord Father, uh, I thank you for um, you, how you are both just and also merciful, how you will not evil persist out in this world, but also the evil that happens in our own hearts. Um, you decided to pursue us to give us mercy, to offer Jesus as the sacrifice for, to meet the, that judgment. Father, uh, may we see that your judgment is final and fair and that we uh, put our faith in Jesus knowing that he meets his costly demands. In Jesus' name, amen.